Hey, my name is Brayden, one of the servant leaders here at Ethos. Thank you so much for checking out our podcast today. We hope you can lean in and enjoy this message. Well, we're in week two of a series uh, called Legacy. And of course, as you just heard Reagan share on Ethos News, next weekend is our annual legacy offering where 100% of what's given goes back out this year, in particular to four of our legacy partners, just individuals or organizations who we just love and believe in so much. And so every year, what we, what we do is we just ask you, all of us together, encouraging one another to just ask God, what do you want me to do? What, what would you have me give? And so this is like a no pressure. You know, at the same time, we know this, that God would have each of us do something. We, we've been blessed to be a blessing. It's so cliche and maybe even corny to say, but, but it's true. And so we want to help make a difference in our world. And so next weekend, just ask that you would come prepared to give towards our legacy offerings so that we can really help see the vision of these organizations go further, faster. Because that's what your generosity does. We don't get to determine the vision but we do get to help accelerate the speed of that vision. That's what generosity, that's what resources do. And and so it's an honor of ours as a church to be generous in that way. And so this weekend is week two of our legacy series. As I mentioned last week, when we were kicking this off. This series, actually the setup for our Advent series, for the series we'll jump into leading into Easter, Easter, leading into Christmas. It's going to be a long series, somebody, but leading into Christmas. And, uh, And so this is a setup for all of that. If you weren't here last week and you hadn't had the chance to listen or, or watch that message, I would encourage you to do so. It, it'll help you even with just understanding a bit further what we're talking about today and more specifically, the setup for next weekend. Because last week and this week really is all a setup for next weekend and then the four weeks leading into, into Christmas. I'll give you just kind of a brief rundown, just a brief review of last week. We, we spoke last week from the topic of death. It's a bit of a morbid topic, but we wanted to look more specifically about the way in which Jesus interacted with death. And so we, we looked at the story of Jesus' interaction with Lazarus, his friend who had just passed away. And Lazarus has died four days prior to Jesus' arrival at his tomb. But before Jesus even gets to the tomb of Lazarus, he comes across the two sisters of Lazarus, Martha and Mary. And it says that when he sees Martha and Mary grieving, they're they're crying. Verse 35 of John 11 says that Jesus himself, he, he wept. Can we throw that up there for just a moment? He, he wept. He, he himself was grieving. Jesus doesn't tell Mary and Martha to get their act together. No, Jesus enters into their grief, which is indicative of not only Jesus' humanity, but listen, it's indicative of his divinity too, that your God grieves when you grieve, that he feels your pain when you feel pain. It's important to note because God is not someone to run from when you're grieving. He's not someone who is going to tell you to get your act together and wipe the tears from your eyes. Just have joy and hope. And No, he says, man, I want to enter into your grief with you. And then just three verses later in John eleven thirty eight. oh gosh, I'm all sorts of, can you throw up John eleven thirty eight for me real quick? Thank you. John, John eleven thirty eight. then says that Jesus then ran to the, we'll get that up there in a moment, whoever's helping me out back there. Jesus ran to the tomb then, shortly after he was grieving with Mary and Martha, and, and it says that he was angry in himself. And again, this is all just quick and brief review, but a better translation is that Jesus was snorting with rage at death. Again, we spoke of this last weekend, but 
But Jesus not only was grieving at death, but he was angry at death itself. And here's the question that we were posing. How could the creator of the world be angry at something in his world? Unless death is an intruder. That death was never a part of God's original design. It's a deep distortion of the creation that he loves. Jesus, God, the spirit, did not create you and I to ever experience death. And I can't encourage you enough to go back and listen to better understand exactly what we mean by that. But we need to understand, though, as we kind of jump into today's message, that Jesus weeps and is angry at this monstrosity of death. And so this morning, just to go a little bit further, I want to share from a working title, Paradise, Heaven, Resurrection, and Rapture, somebody. Come on. Now, if you grew up in a church like I grew up in, and you saw rapture on the title slide, the church would cheer. Like, now this just tells you a little bit about the church I grew up in. And, and some of you are really excited. Yes, we're going to talk about rapture. Others of you are like, what's the rapture? And, and both of you are going to be disappointed by the end of the message, because I'm not really going to talk about it that much. But, but would you stand with me one more time this morning? As we honor God's word together, we stand simply to posture our outward selves in a position of honor as we read God's word. We're going to read from a portion of scripture that we began reading last week and take it just a little bit further today. It says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is the Apostle Paul writing here, and he says, Now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. So Paul's saying, I'm not even speaking of my own opinion. This isn't subjective truth. Paul is saying objectively here, this is reality. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from the heaven with the commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves then together with them we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air then we will be with the Lord forever and Paul concludes by saying so encourage each other with these words now for most of us today in our current culture in the west in America in our church we don't really know how to be encouraged by these words so when Paul says, encourage each other with these words, we're like, I don't even know what it means. And so how could I possibly be encouraged by it? And I do think, I believe that there's a lot of encouragement in this. That's why we're talking about this today. This whole series, Legacy, it's come from the premise that what you believe about eternity, one more time, will determine how you live today. Okay, I promise you I'm done, okay? I'm not going to keep doing this, all right? But it will. It it determines how you live today. And so it's important to note that even just what you believe about tomorrow actually determines what you do today. What you believe about your relationships tomorrow determine how you interact with your relationships today. And so therefore, it's important to note what do we actually believe about eternity? Because it will determine how we live today. And that's, that's a legacy. So let's pray one more time this morning. Father, we ask that you would, through your spirit, meet us here in this place. God, I'm asking that 
you would, again, as you so faithfully do, make up the distance between what I've prepared and the encouraging words, the truth that you want to share to each and every individual and family represented in this place and online today. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I grew up believing, as many of you probably did as well, that heaven was some ethereal place. This place just off in the distance, streets of gold, kind of airy, lots of angels floating around, even a few babies sprinkled in the clouds here and there as well. Constant singing too, right? Like I, I don't know how many of you would be honest enough to raise your hand and say, that's a little bit of how I was raised as well. Like that's kind of what heaven was like. Okay, thank you. There's 12 of us who are in this together this morning. I, I even was in church one time and I distinctly remember being in elementary school and the preacher saying something to the effect of heaven is going to be one big long church service. So if you don't like church now, you're going to hate heaven later. I remember as a young child being like, I'm not sure if I want to go there. Like, can I get a few more details about hell, please? Like anybody with me? Like, like it just didn't seem that enjoyable to me. And and, and we discussed this last week, but your friends and my friends, the people that you interact with who, who know you're a Christian, but they themselves would not say that they are a Christian, they think that what we believe, they think that what Christians believe is that we all start somewhere here on earth, of course, and our timelines may look different, but at a certain point in the history of our life, we find ourselves at death. That death, of course, is inevitable for all of us. And depending on how many good things you do or how many bad things you do, or depending on whether or not you believe just the right things and have just the right ideas about who Jesus is, that, that determines what you'll experience after death. That determines whether or not the fork in the road will lead you to heaven or to hell. That's what your friends who are not Christians think that you believe. That's what they think that I believe. And as we mentioned last week, many of you are sitting in here this morning, you're like, Jordan, that is what I believe. And this isn't entirely false. It's just full of quarter truths or half truths at best. And, and I say this truthfully, as presumptuous as this may sound, I, I love you and I truly want to serve you. And I genuinely believe that what you believe about eternity will determine how you live today. And so I, I want to unpack this a bit further so that we have a better understanding, not just so that it determines how we live tomorrow, but so that we can help be a better, quote-unquote, witness to those who don't believe the same things we believe or who wouldn't say that they are Christians. And in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, in the very first verse of the Gospel of Mark, Mark is recording this book to let people know who Jesus is. And in the very first verse, he, he begins by saying, this, this is the good news about the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's telling us as a setup that everything I'm about to tell you here, everything I'm about to write in this book, is also that you understand who Jesus is, that you understand his good news. And just 14 verses later, Mark 1, verse 15, it says that Jesus went into Galilee where he preached the good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. See, this illustration here 
It's a me-centered story. And God's story is a God-centered story. What Mark is declaring for us, what the New Testament lays out so clearly, is that the kingdom of heaven is not somewhere off in the distance, but the story of the scripture, the New Testament in particular, is that the kingdom of heaven has arrived. That heaven isn't something out there, it's something that has already come here, that it's near. Now, ironically, catch this. The phrase, go to heaven when you die, it appears nowhere in the Bible. Yet in the West, particularly here in America, that's how we all understand death and then heaven or hell. And yet, it's not entirely true. I want, I want to just share with you, and I'm going to unpack this pretty quickly, and I'm anticipating that some of this is going to be brand new for many of you. Some of this is going to be repeat for several of you as well, but just hang with me for a moment. A better illustration in just my opinion, and this is overly simplistic, and so there's a lot of holes that some of you will feel the propensity to poke in what I'm about to share. And so just hang with me as we unpack all of this together, both today and and next week. But I think this is a better illustration for us, that somewhere along the line, of course, this is not to scale, all right? But somewhere along the line, Jesus arrived. And that's what's referred to as the first advent. Advent just simply meaning arrival. The arrival of Jesus. That which we're about to celebrate on Christmas. And then, of course, Jesus died. He was buried. And he was resurrected from the dead. Of course, what we spoke of last week. That death couldn't hold him down because he fulfilled the obligation of the law. Again, reference last week for that. Now, somewhere in the future is the second advent of Jesus. And this is what, in 1830, the word rapture came about. It was never referenced before that year, at least to the best that we understand. So it's only even been in the last 200 years that that word rapture came about. Now, what the scriptures are really clear about is the second coming of Jesus. Now, we have kind of put our own spin on the word rapture, and I just want to talk briefly about the second arrival or the second advent of Jesus. Now, where though in this timeline do we exist? Of course, we're somewhere in between here where we experience life and then, of course, inevitably death. But here's the question I want to just wrestle with for a few moments, and all of us just leaning in together. What happens when you die? Great question. I knew you were all asking that. And so I want to answer that this morning. What happens when you die? Well, according to Jesus, in Luke chapter 23, Jesus finds himself on the cross. It's the image of Easter here. And on his left and right are two other criminals, both on the cross as well, deserving what they get. Jesus, of course, being innocent. And one of the criminals recognized and correctly identifies who Jesus is. In fact, this criminal is asking for forgiveness from Jesus, recognizing him to have the power to forgive him of his sins. And in verse 42, we see this famous scripture that many of you have heard before. And certainly a lot of you who grew up in church are familiar with this. But in Luke 23, 42, it says, Jesus, remember me, the criminal says, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
paradise. Now, many of you probably see that word paradise when you're reading through your New Testament Bible reading plan, or maybe you even just heard this passage referenced at a funeral, and you instantly think of heaven. And listen, it's not detrimental for this state, this state of paradise, to be called heaven, though I think it's important to note that the New Testament routinely does not call paradise heaven and uses the word heaven in in other ways. Let's unpack this, this paradise for just a moment. Because in the original language, the language of the New Testament, which was Greek, it comes from this Greek word paradisos. In Hebrew, it was translated from the Greek word gone. Now, gone and paradisos both can be translated as garden. More specifically, garden of Eden. Now, catch this for a moment. In Luke chapter 23, what Jesus is saying to this criminal on the cross is, hey, bro, today... I'm going to see you in the garden later this afternoon. And in this context on the cross, there's only one garden that Jesus could have been referring to. It was the garden that we see a very descriptive outline of in Genesis chapter 2 and again later in Revelations chapter 22. And this garden of Eden, it's referenced throughout the scripture as a place of pleasure and delight. Now, I don't have a ton of time for the sake of really just brevity today to set us up for where we're going at the end of this message. It's just important for you to note this, that the Garden of Eden was God's gift to humanity. And so whatever you've thought about the Garden of Eden before, I want you just to kind of settle that within you, that it was a gift of God for you, me, in particular in the very beginning, Adam and Eve. And regardless of how you interpret the narratives of Genesis and Christians love to debate the first three chapters. In particular, they love to debate the first 11 chapters of Genesis. But what everybody agrees on is that this is a story that is set in the past. We can all agree on that. And what Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 23 to this criminal on the cross, he's saying that, that you can imagine this is the kind of place, criminal on the cross, that we can meet up in later this afternoon when we're both dead. Paradise, the garden. Early Christians hold firmly and held firmly to a two-step belief about the future. Somewhere along the line, teachings of the scriptures have gotten watered down just a bit, and probably for the sake of simplicity and ease, of which I would argue against, but that's not why we're discussing this today. But the first step is life after death, which is paradise. Now, I'll share just briefly what paradise is in just a moment and what it isn't, but I do think it's important for us to note this. And in particular, I love the words of N.T. right here in his book, Surprised by Hope, where he says, despite a long tradition of misreading, paradise is not a final destination, but it's a blissful garden, the parkland of the rest and tranquility, where the dead are refreshed as they await the dawn of the new day. So in other words, let's just take this illustration a little bit further. Paradise is where the dead goes. What happens when you die? You, you go to Paradise, And again, it's not incorrect to call this heaven. It's just not complete, though, either. That somewhere between here and the second coming of Jesus, where we're also experiencing the resurrection 
of our physical bodies as we discussed last week. And I know if you're new to church, you're like, what did I just step into today? My friend told me that this is a normal church. Well, I'm not sure there is such a thing as a normal church, but that's a whole other discussion. But at some point, we'll experience the resurrection of our bodies. And until then, though, when you die, your soul goes to, to paradise. Now, let me just take this a bit further as we unpack paradise. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, shortly after Adam and Eve had sinned and therefore separated themselves from God, it says that when the cool of the evening breezes were blowing, man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. And then God called out to them. And he said, hey, hey guys, where, where are you? Now, walking in the garden, that phrase there in verse 8 of Genesis 3, it can also be translated as to meet with God. That God shows up in the garden to meet with Adam and Eve. In particular, I think it's important and awesome to note that the garden was actually an invitation for man and woman, for humanity to come and meet with God. It wasn't just the resting place in the birthplace of humanity. It was actually the invitation of God to saying, I'm here and I want to invite you to come meet with me here as well. And the rest of the biblical story is actually a story of God's relentless effort to fully restore heaven on earth. Why? to meet with his people. God desperately wants to be with us in a way that we are consciously aware of his abiding and permanent presence. And so what is paradise? Paradise is where our souls go. And again, it's not incorrect to reference this as heaven. I just think it's incomplete. Paradise is where we go, where our souls go to meet with God, to be with him. Immediately, your loved ones who are in Christ, who belong to God, where are they right now after they have passed away? They are with God in a dwelling place with him, a place of peace and tranquility, a place of perfection and beauty. It's not airy. It's not off in the distance, as we'll mention here in just a moment, but heaven or paradise is the place where God's purposes for the future are stored up it isn't where they are meant to stay, though, so that one would need to go to paradise or go to heaven to enjoy them. It is rather a place where they're kept safe against the day when they will become a full reality on earth. Now, let's take this just a step further. So the second step in that two-step belief about the future, step two is a new bodily existence in a newly remade world that we experience after the resurrection. And that's where heaven then will come into its fullness here on earth. Now, are you with me this morning? Are you with me? I know that I'm going through this kind of quick, and really this is probably at least a three-week teaching, but this will make more sense here in just a moment as to why we're laying some of this out. But I think it's important to note this, that the ultimate destination is not go to heaven when you die. The ultimate destination is being bodily raised where your soul and body come back together, are reinvented. You experience the perfection of both and heaven fully collides with earth. The earth, contrary to kind of fundamentalist Christian perspective and teachings, is not going to be done away with. 
No, the earth is gonna be made new. So the earth is not some evil place where God's like, I can't wait to burn that place up and, and just get everybody to heaven. No, God's like, no, I love the earth. I created the earth. I'm for the earth. I can't wait for it to become new again. And so heaven or paradise isn't the ultimate destination. Heaven on earth is the ultimate destination. So the resurrection isn't life after death. It's life after life after death. See, heaven and earth in biblical cosmology, and this is where I wish I had a better way to explain this, so I'm going to do my best. I mean, I'm just hoping that in this moment, there's some dots that are connecting with some of you. But heaven and earth and biblical cosmology are not two different locations within the same continuum of space or matter, but rather they are two different dimensions of God's good creation. What I mean by dimensions is you and I understand the difference between two-dimensional and three-dimensional, right? Two-dimensional height and length, but no depth. Three-dimensional, all three. Come on, somebody. All three. But if 2D Mario is hanging out in a 3D Mario world and 2D Mario comes upon a sphere, that sphere is only going to look like a circle because 2D Mario has no depth perception. And so there is a space where 2D Mario can't see everything, even though everything is still a reality, he can't see it as a reality. And what I'm getting at here is that we are living in a space and time, and this is where our minds are gonna be blown just a little bit, and some of you are like, prove it, Jordan, and if I had more time, I would try, but ultimately, I would also, also offer to you some conjecture that I can't fully prove this. Otherwise, you simply have to experience it, of which I know for a fact that many of you have experienced this, that we are not living in a space where heaven is off in the distance, but rather what the scriptures teach us and what we have the beautiful opportunity to experience ourselves is that heaven, according to Mark chapter 1, verse 15, is here now. And like 2D Mario can't see that sphere or that ball, he just sees it as a circle. And that's what it's like for us. And that's why scholars refer to the age in which we currently live as the now but not yet age. We experience heaven now, but not in its fullness yet. That's after the resurrection. That's when heaven fully invades earth. Russell Moore, in his book, A Theology for the Church, writes the chief promise of the gospel, of the good news, is not that we will go to heaven when we die, but that heaven will come to earth, transforming the world, renewing the earth, and remaking the entire cosmos. Now, what's heaven going to be like? Well, the difference between paradise and heaven, and this is just my way of explaining it, is that they're very much the same except one only includes your soul and the other includes the, your soul and your renewed body. And again, that's after the resurrection. And the devil, our enemy, is such a good liar that he's convinced a lot of us that heaven is boring and therefore eternity with God is going to be boring too. But I man, I'll tell you what, when you see and read the description of heaven in the scriptures, Heaven is the opposite of boring. And the most joyful experience you ever had on earth will, without question, pale in comparison 
to that which you will experience in eternity when you experience the fullness of the presence of God. Revelation 21 verse 27 says that nothing evil will be allowed to enter heaven. In fact, we see even more description within the scriptures of heaven. We understand that we will know one another and will be fully loved by one another, that our relationships will be perfect, that you will be united with those who you love. There will be no more heartache or pain. Heaven will be a place of unimaginable beauty, the most beautiful place that you've seen on planet earth. You'll experience the perfection of that in heaven because heaven isn't going to be something separate from the earth. It's actually the perfection of all the beautiful things that you already see on earth right now. In heaven, there will be colors that your current eye cannot fully see. And again, remember 2D Mario versus 3D Mario. You'll see things in a whole other dimension. You will have new and perfect bodies, free from ailments, free from pain, free from aging. Come on, come on, women, free from wrinkles. I don't know why I just said women, because some men don't like them either. I'm like, give me more wrinkles, they, you know? Just gray hair and wrinkles makes me look wiser. At least I'm trying to convince myself of that. Anyway, that wasn't funny, and some of you knew it. Anyway, those of you who laugh, thanks for, thanks for doing that. You will work in heaven, but your work will be that which actually brings satisfaction to you and glory to God. Like the job that you have in heaven will be one that you're like, man, this is the job I always dreamt of. It's satisfying to me. Your work in a way that work was intended to be for the glory of God, not just the benefit of man. And so contrary to what many people believe, Scripture teaches that the earth will actually exist forever. Some have mistakenly embraced the notion that God hates this dirty little planet and has promised to rescue his people out of it before he trashes it. But that's not true. That's not what Scripture teaches. But... And here's where I want to just spend our remaining time. But because the world presently stands under the defilement of sin, God's people, Christians, followers of Jesus, are strangers and what the scriptures refer to as pilgrims currently on this earth. And this is where we come across Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, of what? If you grew up in maybe a more traditional church, you've heard this scripture used almost kind of in connection with what's referred to often as escapism theology. Like we're just going to escape the earth. I just got to get out of here. I just got to endure for as long as I can so that eventually I can just get to heaven when I die. But that's not really what Paul is talking about here in Philippians 3. He, he says, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies, again, the resurrection, so that they will be like his glorious body. Now consider this for a moment. The meaning here in Philippians 3 verse 20, I think this will help you. And everything that I've said up to this point was just a setup, a foundation for this, so we can better understand this. So if you were falling asleep, which I don't know how you could because it got really cold in here, but, but if you were, like, you can lean in now and, and you'll get something out of this. But the meaning here is not that their destination was heaven. That's not what Paul is saying. Philippi, 
The church that Paul is writing to here in the book of Philippians was a Roman colony. And most Philippians were Roman citizens. And their destiny, therefore, was not Rome, though. See, the function of a Roman colony was actually to bring the culture of Rome to the city of Philippi. And so what Paul is saying here in Philippians 3, and we got to get this, because this will help how we live today. What Paul is saying here is that we are called to bring the culture of heaven to earth, not to escape earth, not just to say, Maranatha, Maranatha, like Lord Jesus, come. And though there's still health in that too, and we'll talk about that later in this series, but rather to recognize that we have this beautiful privilege and hope in our hearts to bring a piece of heaven right here as we exist and live on the earth. And so let's take this illustration just a little bit further. So what happens when we die? Paradise. What happens after the resurrection when Jesus returns? What we would often refer to maybe even in kind of traditional last 200 years evangelical church as the rapture. After that, it's heaven on earth. The perfection of our bodies, the intersection of our spirit or our soul in our bodies. But what about now? From the time Jesus was resurrected until the second coming of Jesus, the second advent of Christ. Well, now... The kingdom of heaven is near. Or as Jesus said in other places, it has arrived. And now here's where we look back and we take what we talked about last week just a step further. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, if you recall last week, we talked from verse 13 to 15. It says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet call of God, first the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then we will be with the Lord forever. Now, many of us have heard that scripture taught. And again, it's, it's rapture. And it's not that that's entirely wrong, but when Paul says meeting the Lord in the air. The point is not to stay up there somewhere. Again, Paul is using language here that would have been very familiar to the people that he was speaking to. Now, it's unfamiliar to us because it was written 2,000 years ago in an Eastern culture. And of course, that's not the culture in which we live in and exist. But the people would have understood that when an emperor, when a ruler, when a Roman emperor visited a colony, a city, a town within his empire, it was honorable for the citizens of that colony to go meet the emperor outside of the colony and then escort him into the city. That was a thing of honor. And so what Paul is saying here is that we'll meet the Lord in the air so that we can escort the Lord back to the earth where he will make everything new once again. And so that's why we said last week, we don't have to grieve like those who have no hope for our hope is in the reality that we know that God will one day make all things new. Now, I would not even try, and I don't know that I ever will in the next 25 years as, as I continue to pastor this church, God willing. I, I don't know that I'll ever try to really flesh out eschatology or end times theology because here's what I know. Here's, here's what you know too. If we know nothing else about biblical prophecy, we know this, 
that its fulfillment will flesh out its details. In other words, we don't know what all of this will look like. And Jesus himself said, why are you even trying? You're not going to know the time, the date of my second coming. Here's what we know too, that Christ's first coming, his first arrival came with a lot of surprises. Even for those who studied biblical prophecy, And his second coming will come with an equal amount, if not even more surprises as well. And so we ought not try to get into the mud of these details. There's something more important that we're after here. Karl Barth says it like this. We can't fathom the second advent of Jesus Christ, and we stammer when we even try to speak of it. He goes on to say, so basically, why even try? And so as we look back at this illustration, then we say, okay, well then Jordan, what are we meant to do with all of these, with all this information now? What are we meant to do? Now that we know, what should we do? Which is a common question that we ought to ask ourselves when we're reading the scripture, when we're studying the scripture. Now that I know, what ought I do? Or what should I do? And I want to bring our attention back right here. We can get caught up in our theology here. Christians love to get caught up in our misunderstanding of here. And I think that's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, what we sang a few moments ago, seek first his kingdom, everything else will be added, because the kingdom of heaven is here. It's here. So what then are the implications of this? Well, while we're not from this world, as Paul says in Philippians 3, we certainly are, church, hear me, we certainly are for this world. And Christians have a bad reputation, man. We, we've developed a bad stereotype that we're not like for the world, but Jesus was for the world. And we ought to be for the world too. That's why Jesus says, he's like, look, I'm not just trying to get you to escape the world. I want you to pray that my kingdom would come and my will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven or as it is in paradise. Leonard Sweet and Frank Viola in their book, Jesus, A Theography, one of the books that's probably helped shape me more than many others in the last decade, they wrote that in biblical prophecy, the coming of Jesus is viewed as one event separated by parentheses that stretch from the ascension to his royal appearing at the end of the age. We are now living in those parentheses. Again, I'm just belaboring the point that we're living in the parentheses of the kingdom of heaven is near, not yet fully experienced, but it's here now. It's the age of now, but not yet. And so, those who follow Jesus, those of us who say, yeah, I'm a Christian, which I know is is the majority of you, we live in the presence of the future. Just hang with me. And so therefore, instead of thinking of God as up above, as a separate world, think of it more as 2D versus 3D. Think of God as up ahead drawing the world upward toward Christ. We're not trying to escape the world. See, some of you are running from the very people that Jesus came running to. You're trying to escape the very relationships that God's saying, no, I want them to experience my kingdom here. 
Like I want them to experience a part of heaven as a reality in their life here. And so you're running from them and you're even talking negatively and poorly about them. And God says, no, look, I want you to be for them. Yeah, but I don't agree with them. I don't agree with their decisions. Yeah, 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 okay. And yet, you think Jesus came agreeing with everything? No, he was constantly correcting and encouraging and hanging out with people who were nothing like him, and yet people who were nothing like him seemed to like him. In fact, some of us are called by God to bring hope, peace, joy, and love into situations where if we look at them and we're honest, there's no hope, no peace, no joy in love, and yet we're called by God to bring a slice of heaven on earth, but we're trying to just be like, yeah, but like, I just want to escape this reality. I just need to get another job. I just need to get out of this, I just need to kind of get out of this situation and just get into something that's just a bit more comfortable. God's like, look, man, the truth is that the kingdom of heaven is here now, but you're also experiencing the kingdom of darkness. And sometimes that's uncomfortable because when light and darkness intersect, there's all sorts of shadows that overlap. And yet we're called by God and empowered by his spirit to bring heaven here now. And we're gonna dive into the weeds of this next week and during our Advent series. But I just wanna close with this that some of us are ignoring that what we do in this age has an effect on the age to come. Some of us aren't even considering that how we live now has an effect on not only the age to come personally, but the age to come for others around us who may not ever get to experience the beauty of the hope that we find in the scriptures as a result of knowing that one day our physical bodies will be resurrected and it will be made new that some of us don't even understand. We're ignoring the reality that other people need the hope of salvation in their life and that we may be the agent that is called by God to bring that into their worlds. Some of us view our possessions in light of now, but not in light of eternity. Some of us use our resources just to benefit ourselves, but not to benefit those in hopes that we can help them, help, help more people get to heaven, that we could populate heaven and decimate hell. Hear me, listen, the reason why we do a legacy offering every year, if I'm gonna be totally honest, the reason why we do this every single year is because here, in suburban church culture, we have got to exercise selfishness and greed out of our lives. We love to say, oh, I got a raise. How can I increase my standard of living? Versus, wow, God has given me more. How can I increase my standard of giving? Now, we don't like to talk about that because it's mine, it's mine, 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 my stuff. Don't talk about my stuff. You think it's easy for me sometimes? Like sometimes I feel like, gosh, I'm reading something, I'm preaching something, and I'm like, God, now you mean now I gotta live up to this stuff? And God's like, you, you better try, son. And sometimes I fail. No, a lot of times I fail. But together we are called by God to look at eternity and say, God, we see what heaven's gonna be like and I wanna bring a slice of that here on earth. We need to begin to view our relationships in light of eternity. We need to begin to review, review our time in light of eternity. That's a legacy. 
my friend, Steve Snowball, dear friend of mine, he was just sharing with me a couple weeks ago. He says, man, the older I get, and he is old, man, he's old as dirt, but the older I get, he always acts like he's so old. I'm so old. I'm like, man, you're like 50 years old, bro. Like, you ain't even that old. But anyway, he's like, the older I get, he says, the more the legacy becomes like, it hits me different. It's like when I was younger, I didn't really think about legacy. I think that's how most of us are. When we're younger, we're not really thinking about, because like, it feels like we're going to live forever. I mean, I pray that there'd be something that would deposit within us through the course of this series, that even as we lean into Christmas here in a few weeks, that we say, no, God, like, I, like, I, like, give us a sense of urgency for tomorrow, because with Jesus, those of us who are in Christ, heaven begins now. And then personally, in your own life, it's not just about what you can do for others. It's about also experiencing the hope, the peace, the joy, and the love of heaven in your own life, even right now. Because all of that is found in the presence of God. So when Jesus showed up and he said, the kingdom of heaven has arrived, he was literally saying, I am it. I am the kingdom. And because I have arrived, you get to experience the kingdom as well. 